0: 28 and chapter 27. I'm going to start Matthew chapter 27 first I'm going to pick it up in in verse 32 he has been scourged he has been mocked he's been beaten already the lord jesus christ and now they're taking him to be crucified in verse 32 <clears throat> It says, And as they came out, they find of Manai, Cyrene Simon by name, and they compelled him to bear his cross. I don't have time to go into that. You can look at, when I preach through the book of Matthew, we can actually see where his, his children and wife are converted later on, and they're, and they're actually assisting with, with the work of Christ. But verse 33, And when they were come unto a place called Golgotha, that is to say, a place of the skull, they gave him vinegar to drink, mingled with gall. When he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. And they crucified him, parted his garments and casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments um, among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. Now, what's interesting is when the Bible goes to describe the crucifixion of Christ, it basically just always gives us the four words. And they crucified him. It doesn't go into more detail than that. It's interesting what the focus is. Verse 36 And sitting down there, and sitting down, they watched him there and set up over his head his accusation written, This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then were there uh, two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand and another on the left. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, "Thou that destroyedest the temple and build it, uh, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross." Likewise also the chief priest mocking him with the scribes and elders. So we have the crowd mocking. Now we have the chief priest mocking. He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. The thieves also, which were crucified with him, cast the same in his teeth. So now the criminals, so we have, we have the crowd, we have the chief priests, and we have the criminals all mocking him on the cross. We go on, it says, now from the sixth, uh, from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land, until the ninth hour, that is from about noon to three o'clock. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani. That is to say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of them that stood there, when they heard this, when they heard, said that this man call, calleth for Elias, and straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. The rest said, Let be. Let us see whether Elias will come to save him. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost and behold the veil of the temple was rent in twain from top to the uh, the bottom and the earth did quake and the rocks rent and the graves were open and many bodies of the saints which slept arose let's jump over to matthew 28 this would have been it's, it's debated as to what day he was crucified whether it was a wednesday a thursday or a friday i have a sermon where i base why i believe it had to be a thursday that this took place you can you can look it up on our website and read that. And so now we come to Sunday morning, early Sunday morning. Matthew chapter 28. He has now been in the grave three days and three nights. It says, in the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning, and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. The angel answered and said unto the woman, Unto the women, Fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come see the place where the Lord lay. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, Lord, I love you. Lord, I ask your blessing upon the message this morning. Lord, help me to stay true to Your Word. Lord, may may Your Word and Your Spirit have free course. Lord, draw us closer to You. Lord, we are so grateful for what You did for us and what You are willing to do in order to save us from judgment to come. Lord, may the Gospel go forth and may it be clear. Please work on hearts. Lord, I do pray if there's anyone here who has never truly been converted, I pray that this morning they would repent and place their faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, please work on hearts. Lord, I pray and ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. The fact of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is a cornerstone doctrine of Christianity. Without it, Christianity does not exist. It is a vain religion if the resurrection does not take place. It is of utmost importance. Being that it is true, this doctrine gets attacked Often, coming up with different theories to try and explain it away. I am thinking of tonight, we have a communion service this evening, but I am thinking of addressing some of the different theories that are talked about in order to try and explain away the resurrection. Some like to say, well, it was just a spiritual resurrection. This was not a spiritual resurrection, his body was gone. This was a physical resurrection that took place. The proof is there of the resurrection. We see the proof of course of the empty tomb. It's an empty tomb, it's not a shrine. There's not a body inside of it. Right now there, there's no body to worship. You can take your other world religions and I almost put up some pictures of of multitudes of multitudes and, and false religions that are that are bowing down worshipping before a dead body. There is no body. The, the, the body of Christ is not there. Another proof of the resurrection is the fact of the first witnesses that are recorded uh, of seeing the risen Christ. It's women. Back in this, especially in the first century, in the Roman culture, women were considered second-class citizens. It's not who you wanted for a witness. It's interesting how the Lord does it here. So the very first witnesses, that even points to the proof of the resurrection, that it wasn't something that man tried to make up himself. Because that's not who they would pick to be the first witnesses of the resurrection. Thirdly, and this is a powerful proof of it, the change in the apostles. Christ is arrested and they scatter. They're fearful, they're afraid, they scatter. They don't understand all the events that are taking place yet. They're about to understand. But all of a sudden, they change. There's this incredible boldness that they have now. They're willing to be beaten. I mean, it's amazing what they go through. What produced a change from the time of the crucifixion to just days later, you see completely different men. They met the risen Savior. That's what changed. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that Christ showed himself to over 500 people. Another proof of the resurrection is the conversion of a man that we're looking through. Right now, we're going through the book of Acts on Sunday morning. And we've we've come through Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 9 is the conversion of a man named Saul. Saul was a religious leader of the day. He was highly esteemed. He was on track to take over the leading theological school of the day. And he becomes the man who is leading the charge to stop out, to stomp out this movement of Christianity, to get rid of it. He was, he is the one who was responsible, who gave the authority to execute the very first Christian martyr in Stephen. The Bible says he began to wreak havoc on the church. I mean, he was going after, he was, he didn't care if you were a woman or not. He was in prison. He was breaking up families. He was uh, uh, allowing martyrdom to, uh, uh, to take place. And all of a sudden, this man, on his way, once again, to arrest more Christians in Damascus, he changes. He's completely different. Now, all of a sudden, he becomes a voice for the movement. He becomes the key man. What happened? Guess who he met on that road to Damascus? The risen Christ. Really, the fact that churches exist right now is proof of the resurrection. The fact that we're here is proof of the resurrection. There's even historians, like like a key historian that I enjoy reading, named Josephus. This man is not a Christian. He's a Jewish historian. Do you know what he writes about? The resurrection. He talks about it in his writings. It is the cornerstone for the Christian faith. Without it, our religion is in vain. What took place 2,000 years ago between the the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is uh, one of the most important events that has ever happened in all of human history. We are 2,000 years removed from it. And as our culture has become more and more and more secular, with less and less knowledge of the Creator and God, there's a tremendous lack of understanding of how a man who died 2,000 years ago on a Roman cross has anything to do with him today. I want us to look at the cross this morning and learn from it. I want us to see, I, I want to dive into the reaction that the crowd had and what was going on in their mind to the religious leader, the chief priest, and then lastly, those criminals that were crucified with him. Christ, as I've already said, had already been scourged and beaten before the uh, crucifixion took place. The Roman soldiers mocking him, putting a crown of thorns upon upon his head, beating him. Then they took him to be crucified. I want to take a minute here and talk about the horrors of the cross. It was a a torture device, a, a device of death. And I think we need to understand what the Romans did. This death is what God Almighty chose before the foundation of the world. He knew this would have to take place. And I hope by the time you're, we're finished here, you'll understand why. The actual act of crucifixion was started by the Persians in world history. A horrible death. Incredibly painful. Agonizing death. I will read from some sources about what a Roman crucifixion was like. This is from a, a Dr. Truman Davis' book on, on, on crucifixion. He said the cross would be lying on the ground, the victim would be placed down on the cross, and first his feet, his feet would be extended. His toes pulled down and then a large nail would be driven through the arch of one foot and then the arch of another foot. And then his hands would be extended Allowing his knees to flex a little bit and there would be great nails driven through his wrists just below the bottom part of his hand, the heel of his hand, because there is a place where it would hold. In the middle of the hand, he writes, it would not hold, it would pull up through the fingers. Once the victim was nailed there, the cross would be picked up and dropped into a hole. And when it hit, The bottom of the socket, of course, it would rip and tear the flesh and send the nerve impulses to make explosions in the brain in regards to pain. The victim is now crucified. Slowly, he would begin to sag down. More and more, the weight being placed upon the nails running through his wrist, excruciating, fiery pain, would shoot up the arms into the mind. Pressure put on the median nerves would be beyond almost the ability to endure. The Lord would then try to push to relieve the pain, so he would push with his feet and be pushing on the two wounds on his feet. And the same thing would happen, that excruciating pain shooting through. And hour after hour, this wrenching, twisting, torment of the body back and forth, trying to relieve one and then the other, the hands and then the feet, the hands and then the feet. It would become very impossible after a while to do anything. Any pushing upward because of the pain and the sagging would put the greatest weight upon the hands. At this point, another, uh, uh, another event occurs as the arms uh, grow fatigued. Great waves of cramps sweep over the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps comes the inability to push himself upward. Hanging by his arms, the pectoral muscles are paralyzed and the intercoastal muscles are unable to act. Air can be drawn into the lungs, but it can't be exhaled. Jesus fights to raise himself to get even one short breath. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and in the bloodstream. He would grasp short breaths of air, hours of limitless pain, cycles of twisting joint-rending cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain as tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down the rough timber, a deep, crushing pain in the chest as the pericard pericardium—I can even speak this morning—pericardium slowly fills and begins to compress the heart, and this leads to death. Another short segment here from another author, author far on his, on his book *The Life of Christ*. He said, "A death by crucifixion seems to include all that pain and death can have of the horrible and ghastliness." Dizziness, cramps, thirst, starvation, sleeplessness, traumatic fever, tetanus, shame, the public humiliation, long continuance of torment, horror of anticipation, mortification of unintended wounds, all intensified just up to the point where they can be endured at all, but all stopping just short of the point which would give to the sufferer the relief of unconsciousness. The unnatural position made every movement painful. The lacerated veins and crushed tendons throbbed with incessant anguish. The wounds inflamed by exposure gradually gangrened. The arteries, especially at the, hand, excuse me, especially at the head and stomach, become swollen and oppressed with surcharged blood. And while each variety of misery went on gradually increasing, there was added to them the intolerable pain of a burning and raging thirst." And all these physical complications caused an internal excitement and anxiety which made the prospect of death itself, uh, um, the unknown enemy at whose approach man usually shudders most, bear the aspect of a delicious and exquisite release. There's other places I've read up different horrors of it because usually it would take you a day or two to die on a cross. A lot of times birds would come down once the weakness was set and, and would come on the bodies and actually eat away at the flesh while they're still alive. It was a brutal death. It was the death that the Lord chose in order to redeem us. It was what was necessary in order to satisfy justice. What the Lord was doing on the cross was literally taking our place in judgment before His Father. He was going before the Father and said, listen, place their sin upon me. Judge me in their place. The Bible teaches this throughout. 2 Corinthians 5.21 It says, for He hath made Him, Christ, to be sin for us, who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. He was being judged for your sin. He was saying, listen, allow me to take their sin upon myself. I will give them my perfect life. He is switching places with you. He's taking his righteousness to give it to you to take your sin upon himself. And then the father could judge him for your sin. It is not that God just says, you know what? You're just forgiven. That's not how this works. God is a just God. And so in order to redeem us, in order to save us from this judgment, His justice had to be satisfied. He loved us. He, the Bible teaches He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And He had to find a way to satisfy justice and love. That was the cross. That was Him saying, listen, I, I will be that second Adam. I will, I, I, God would become a man, the Lord Jesus Christ. He would live the perfect life. He's the only one who's ever done it. He lived the perfect life. Think about that. He is the only one that's ever lived on this earth that could go to the judgment day. And the Father could say, you're innocent. He's it. The only one. He lived that perfect life for you. When He went to that cross, undergoing that pain, the pain was necessary because it was satisfying justice for the sins of mankind. He was taking your place. If you stand before God with your own sin and He judges you, and you go to hell, you're not coming out. After three days and three nights, the Lord Jesus Christ defeated death and rose again from the dead. It's amazing what he was willing to go through. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 tell us, For as much as you know as that you are not redeemed with corruptible things of silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. As, as that epistle is being written there, what he's saying is this. He says, remember what it took to redeem you, to save you from judgment day. It wasn't silver and gold, it's not your money, it's not your works. It took God becoming a man, His precious blood, Him being judged on a cross in your place. When we say that Christ died for you, it's what we mean. He's the one who went through that separation. He's the one who went through that pain and agony in your place. He was your substitute. He died for you. So that you might have life. When he was on the cross, we saw three different groups. Now, what's interesting is when I conclude this, I'll sort of do the spoiler right now. I can take you to the book of Acts with each and and even in our text, we'll see. That each one of these groups, at least some of them, actually repent and come to Christ. Some of the crowd. Some of the chief priests, and of course, one of the thieves. Look at the crowd's response to Christ in verse 39 and 40 of Matthew 27. It says, And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself, if thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Now the Romans always crucified near the road. They wanted the passerby's to see it. It was a a form of intimidation, uh, trying in their mind, trying to keep law and order. This is what's going to happen to you. And so it was always public in nature. And so as, as the crowd would pass by, they were tossing the insults at Christ, reviling him, wagging their heads. That that's an insult. Throwing these insults at him, even referring to one of the false witnesses that came up uh, about Christ uh, destroying the temple and rebuilding it. Little do they know he was talking about his own body and the resurrection that's getting ready to take place. These are the people, this crowd, who are religious. Do you understand that many of these people at this time at Passover, Jerusalem has an enormous population during this time frame. At this time in the 1st century Jerusalem because of the Passover would have about a million people in it which is for that day enormous. The pilgrimage are taking place, it's packed multitudes of those who are walking by right now insulting Christ just days earlier. Going back to the Sunday before this Thursday, they were the ones crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's the same people here it is, days later, he's crucified on a cross, and they're mocking him. What happened? What's taking place? Incredible. You see, what happened was this Jesus Christ, in their mind, did not fulfill their expectation. And we can see, I'm going to tie this in what happened to so many people who were once in church. This group, when Christ came into the city with a triumphant entry, everybody so excited, the multitudes of crowds coming, the garments being put down. Know what they believed? He's going to set up his kingdom. He's going to overthrow Rome. Oh, they couldn't wait. He's going to overthrow Rome. This is the Messiah. He's going to establish his kingdom. But instead, he overthrew the mountain changers in the temple. Instead, he came down hard on religious leaders. They thought he would lead a revolt against Rome. But he didn't. And they watched as the days went by and he is arrested. And now here he is crucified. Their expectations of what he had, they certainly weren't met. There's some of the people who used to be in church for some they've attended church, maybe they've been raised in church, they've heard truth. Maybe they made a profession of faith at some point, even been baptized, but that's all in the past. They're not interested anymore. They've gone on other things because for whatever reason, it didn't fulfill their expectations. Many people want to try and follow Christ for some immediate satisfaction or some form of self indulgence. When that is not met to their expectations, they have no need. They have no need. Or perhaps it's like when Christ cleaned out the temple, or cleaned out, yeah, cleaned out the temple and the money changers. Maybe they realized, whoa, he's going to restrict me too much. I don't like that. But there's some type of expectation there that wasn't met. But, like all, what we see taking place is a lack of understanding. What that crowd never realized on that Sunday is why he was coming into that city. He was coming in to die, not lead the revolt like they expected. It's true for multitudes. They they never grasp the understanding of what it was all about. They have the terminology down. They see it. But as far as God being their God. And seeing Him for what life is all about. The transfer never takes place. There's a misunderstanding. So we have the crowd that was just crying out. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And now they're insulting him days later as he's being crucified on a cross. Then we have the chief priest. Verse 41, likewise also the chief priest mocking him with the scribes and elders. He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now. If he will have him, for he said, I am the son of God. Now we have the religious leaders. They too are mocking and insulting while this man is dying on the cross and suffering. You would think at the very least that the religious leaders would show a measure of compassion right now. That they would try and calm the the crowd down. He's dying on the cross. He has been beaten. He's in excruciating pain. But no, their bitterness is so strong. You would think they'd want to lead the crowd to a spiritual place and not feed into the carnality and the frenzy and the ridicule. But they do the opposite. Then they claim, well, if he comes down, we will believe. This is just more mocking. There's certainly not, there's no sincerity in it. They've witnessed his miracles. They've seen him raise the dead. They've seen him give the blind sight. They start throwing insults. Sarcasm, anger. In verse 43, little do they realize this day, but I bet you they did later on. They're quoting right from Psalm 22 and 8, Psalm chapter 22 and verse 8, when it's talking about the, the crucifixion of Christ, and they don't even realize it. They even affirm his miracles, they mock his claim of being the Son of God. Oh, but he certainly is. Little do they realize, here in just three days, He is going to prove He is, in fact, the Son of God when He defeats death and raises again from the dead. And then we have the last group, the criminals. Verse 38 and verse 44. Then were there two thieves crucified with Him, one on the right hand and another on the left. Verse 44. The thieves also, which were crucified with him, cast the same in his teeth. So when the crucifixion starts out here, the Bible teaches us that both the men, both these thieves, were mocking him as well. But we need to get a clearer picture of what went on to take place. Look over in Luke chapter 23. Turn to the Gospel of Luke 23. It might have only been the one but that's not exactly what it says. But we do get a clear picture of what ended up taking place as the hours passed by on the cross. Luke 23, let's start in verse 39. It says, In one of the malefactors which were hang railed on him saying if thou be the christ save thyself and us but the other answering rebuked him saying dost thou dost not thou fear god seeing thou art in the same condemnation and we indeed justly for we received the due reward of our deeds but this man hath done nothing amiss and he said unto jesus lord remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee today, Thou shalt be with me in paradise. The time of this conversation, they've been on the cross about three hours. One of them here is still mocking, but the other now has a different reaction. We see some things about his reaction in verse 40 and 41. We see how he admits his own guilt. He began to understand some things as his life's uh, blood was leaving his body. And he knows he's just hours from death. He begins to understand his own guilt. This is where many have problems. They don't like to admit that they're guilty. Well, how many is that true for us? We always look for an excuse as, as to excuse away our own actions. This man has, all of a sudden, something's getting a hold of this man where he realizes how guilty he really is. The fact is, the Bible teaches us all are guilty before God. The thief, the church member, the pastor, the businessman, the farmer, the young, the old. This week, I'm not sure if I'm going to respond to it, a former friend of mine in high school. He is lost. And we were fairly good friends before I really started serving Christ and and we still stayed friends even after that in high school. At the start of my sophomore year in high school was when I began serving Christ. He became our, our, our class president. Uh, he was at my wedding. And, uh, and we, we still talked a little bit over the years. And then this week I read something. Somebody tried to witness to him. giving given him a tract and wrote him a letter. It was actually a nice letter that was written. And then he put it online and began to mock the man. Saying, how could he think he's better than me? Calling him a hypocrite. And, every, and the letter was very kindly written. inviting him to church for Easter services. The comments went on. Of, I think I knew every single person who commented. Blasting. I mean, just how dare they? They need to clean up their own backyard first. And, and the perception was this. What he thought in his mind was a lack of understanding. Even though the bitterness was there against it, there's no doubt. We can see the hatred that has come into the world in the last couple years stronger than ever. And that certainly was part of this. But he lacked understanding. He really believed because he was invited to church that that man thought himself in a position better than him. But that wasn't what the man was saying at all. Understand this. Just because we attend church and we want you to come is not because we think we're better than you. We know we're the exact same sinner that you are. And one day you're going to face an almighty God in judgment. And what this thief was realizing, wait a second. As time went on, it's likely when the crosses went up, he began to mock with the others, but all of a sudden the man began realizing, what am I doing? And I wonder if he hadn't heard Christ preach in the past. Personally, I believe he had. And now here he is. Dying. He hears the other thief rail him. And mock. And he says, you need to be quiet. We deserve to be here. He sees his guilt. Another thing we see in him right now that what is taking place is he fears God. We see that in verse 40. That first thief. He had no fear of God. He's dying. There's no fear of God. Not even being close to death put the fear in him. There are many who think, you know what, I'm just going to wait to get right. Maybe even before I die, I'll do it. Now, what you don't realize is what's what's more likely to take place is what happens with this first thief. You're still not going to have that fear of God. It certainly is not worth that risk. Besides, life is all about Him. Whatever you're living for apart from God, listen, I assure you, it's just a fake pearl. He is what life is all about. The Creator. But we see He now has a fear of God. It's something we certainly need to do. And it is an element that allows a person to come to Christ. It also helps the Christian live right before him. People don't like to... It's amazing how that even gets challenged, how, how we should not fear God. But no, there's a truth to that. You can, you can see it with... As, even as I raised five children, you know what, all my children knew that I loved them. They, they, they had never had a reason to question that in the house. But they also had a fear of Dad. You know what that helped? It helped them do right. We all have a sinful nature. Don't deny that. We do. As this goes on, we see both men ask Christ for salvation. Save thyself and us. The first one calls out. The Lord never acknowledges him. Doesn't say anything to this man. Here I think we do see why some who call on the Lord... um, are never converted, while others are converted. Some simply ask from the wrong boat motivation. The one was asking to be saved from his circumstance, from his current situation. That's what he asked salvation from. That's not true salvation. Many call on God when trouble arises. It has nothing to do with guilt because of sin, it has to do with whatever circumstances happening at the moment. That is not what the salvation of your soul is all about at all. The other asked to be saved from his sin, from judgment. The other one never asked to come down from the cross. That's not what he, what he was afraid of, knowing his guilt and he feared God, was he's going he's to be for the Almighty Creator soon. He didn't know what was going to happen. He knew what a wretched man he was. He's the one who turns to the Lord and says, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. He was convicted of his sin and he turns to the only one who could help him. I mean, think of all the knowledge he actually had right here. He had already told the other faith, this man has no, no sin. He's done nothing wrong. We have. We deserve to be here. And in a simple act of faith, that's it. He put his faith in Christ, and the Lord said, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. There was this sermon, a portion of a sermon that was making its rounds this week, and I had and watched I can't think of the preacher's name who preach it. He's one of those really popular preachers. I know he's in Cleveland. I can't think of his name. I don't know if you saw it this week, but it was, it was stirring how he, he was talking about the thieves on the cross. And it's just about a, a one-minute or two-minute clip, if that. And he had said, he was talking about the thief who made it. He said, think about that. At one point when this first started, he's mocking. But yet, he made it. And, and, and in his sermon, he wanted like a little illustration. All of a sudden, he dies and he's before the angels and the Lord. And the angel says, Wait, what are you doing here? How did you get here? And he says, I don't know. He said, But, but you, you've, you've never been to a Bible study, I'm showing you. You've, you've never been baptized. You've never joined a church. Um, how did you get here? I, I don't know. Well, what happened? And, and, and he says, I, I mean, you didn't. I, I, how did you get here? And he says, wait, I, I, and, he, and the thing he's funny, he goes, let me get my supervisors. The other angel comes and says, let me t- let me ask you a few questions. Tell me about the doctrine of justification. What? The doctrine of what? I, I don't know what that is. Well, well, the doctrine of scripture. Tell me about the doctrine of scripture. What? And he says, on what basis are you here? And he says, the man on the middle cross said I could come. That's the only way there is. That's it. You need that man on the middle cross to say you can come. And you know what that thief did to get there? He simply placed his faith on Christ. The moment he did that, the moment he went to the only one who could help him, He understood this, I am guilty before God. If he judges me, I'm guilty. And he placed his faith in the one who could save him. And the moment he did, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. It's not your good works. It's not that God saved you from a car accident. It's not how many leaves you've turned over in your life. It is repentance repentance and faith in Christ alone. Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. The entire reason the Lord Jesus Christ went through what he did, which he was the one who organized. Think about this, by the way. When you're on a cross, there's no way to yell. You can't scream. The Lord did. Twice. This was God Almighty in human flesh, Literally taking your place in judgment. And then he gave his life. No man took it. He did that in order to save you from judgment day. He is saying, Father, place their sin upon me. Remember, God, in in who he is, the one God, Triune, that one God knew this would work. This would satisfy justice. This would satisfy holiness. I can save mankind. The day that Adam and Eve sinned against God. God talked of this day to come. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. He knew what he would do through his love and his grace in order to save us. That he one day would become a man when the time was perfect. He would live on this earth the perfect life for you. And then He would go to that cross. The Father would place upon Him the sin of mankind. And He would be judged for it. But hell didn't hold Him. After three days and three nights, He defeated death and rose again. He took your sin so that He could give you His Perfect righteousness let me close with this illustration to try and help you to understand it The Bible talks about a judgment day in Revelation chapter 20 that books are going to be open One of those books is basically going to have your name on it. So let's say this is it You're, you're before Almighty God, but you're not going to say a word You're not going to be able to mitigate anything. He knows every single thing you did. He knows exactly why you did it There's nothing to say He's just going to open up. He's going to show you your guilt. Boom. Here's your name Here's every single time you've broken his law. It's there and you know it. There's no denying it. He has perfect knowledge. So here it is. Here's your name and every sin you've ever committed. It's there. Let's set this here. But we got another book. The Lord Jesus Christ's name is up top from his human life on earth. Underneath it is all of his perfect righteousness. There's not one Sin here. He's perfect. Remember, this: God's requirement is perfection. Matter of fact, what does it say in the book of James? If you, if you offended one point in the law, you've broken all of it. His requirement is perfection. He knows none of us are perfect, yet He loves us and desires to save us. So what He did was this. You have Christ here in all of His perfection. You have your, your name here in all of your sin. When I tell you that Christ died for you, what the Bible means is this, is you can take Christ's name, remove it, place it over here. Remove your name and place it over here. Where now, underneath Christ's name, is all of your wickedness. And he was judged in your place, satisfying justice. But hell did not hold him. He's God. After three days and three nights, he arose again from the dead. Now, if your name's been moved over here, look at this. You look Listen to the verse again. For he hath made him. God the Father there has made the Son. For he hath made him to be sin for us. Who knew no sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He took your place. And if you'll come to him just like that thief did. In repentance and faith. He will save you. It's not in a church. It's not in your good works. It's not in the waters of baptism. It is in repentance and faith in Christ. Know what you need? The man on the middle cry on the middle cross to say, you can come. With heads bowed and eyes closed. If you're here right now you say, Pastor, I've heard you preaching. And I'm not certain that heaven is my home. I don't know that i have generally be converted. I hear what you're saying, and I need you to pray for me. I don't know what's going to happen to me. I don't know that I've ever done what you're talking about. Please, I need you to pray for me. I'm not certain that heaven is my home. Would you just put your hand up and you can put it back down. Let me pray for you. Just slide your hand up, let me see it, and then you can put it back down. Anybody here, just slide. I see a couple of small children. Tri- put your hand up. I missed it. I need you to do it again. Just keep it up for a second so I can see it. Anybody here, just slide your hand up and then put it back down. Yes, sir, I see that hand. Anybody else, just slide your hand up and then put it back down. Say, Pastor, I think I need this. Yes, sir, I, I see that hand right there up front. Anybody else? Yes, I see that hand. I saw it quickly. Thank you. Anybody else with these three before I, before I go on? Anybody else? All right. Again, we have had three of you raise your hand. And I'm going to pray for you. Now, if you like, what I've given out is the gospel. I have given to you exactly what Christ did in order to save you from judgment. How you become a Christian. You say, Pastor, please, I heard it and, and I want it. I can, have, I can have workers just take you aside privately right now. Make sure you understand what I just said. And you can make the decision on your own right there whether you want to put your faith in Christ or not. You say, Pastor, yes, I would like somebody to talk with me. If you would like that, all I need you to do is to look up at me and I'll send somebody right to you very discreetly. Anybody like that. If you would like that, just look up at me. Let me make eye contact with you. Anybody else say yes? I'd like you to send somebody to the police talk with me. I'll give it just a few seconds more. If even during the invitation you want to come forward, you certainly can. I can have somebody come and pray with you right at the altars. Others will come and pray. Even after the service you want to talk, I'm here. Christian, it wasn't a prayer that saved you. Understand that. It was the Son of God becoming sin for you. We have been bought with a price. This day we take time to remember what our Lord went through in order to redeem us. What He went through on that cross. Life is all about Him. If you have something you need to come pray about or just tell the Lord thank you, whatever it is. We'll give you time to do that. Father in heaven, bless this invitation. Lord, I pray this in Christ's name. I thank you for the three who raised their hands. Lord, I pray for that conviction and that drawing. Lord, I pray for the one who's being dealt with right now. Lord, I certainly pray for that person's conversion here even this morning. Lord, please bless and work. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand to our feet. You can get a hymnal and turn to page 326. And if you'd like to come in.